everyone. Welcome to the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Joe. Welcome, welcome. Before we get into today's interview, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. You can follow us on social media. We're at ProBookNerds on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And you can email professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com if you want to reach out to us. With that, let's get into today's interview. My guest today is the best-selling author of The Power, which was the winner of the 2017 Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction. It was longlisted for the 2017 Oral Prize and chosen as one of the best books of the year by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, NPR, Entertainment Weekly, and the San Francisco Chronicle. She grew up in London and attended Oxford University and UEA. She is also the co-creator and writer for the app Zombies Run. Here to talk about her new book out on November 7th, The Future, it's Naomi Alderman. Naomi, welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. I was just mildly distracted by a thing coming up on my screen suddenly saying, this is being recorded, which of course it's being recorded. (laughs) It's a podcast. Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) at least they let you know. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad to have you here. And to start off, could you tell the listeners a bit about the future, which so funny to say. <laughs> Great title right, choice for that oh, alone. <laughs> yeah. Right. So the future is a novel in this case, although it does also take place in the future. Uh, it's it's a novel which opens with three technology billionaires receiving a notification via their predictive software that the apocalypse is coming. And they've got to get to their jets and get out to their private bunkers in order to be able to survive the apocalypse. And uh, let me tell you, that does not go as they expected it to go. Um, it's, uh, I seem to have managed to written a novel, which is a love story and a noirish thriller about being thrown into a situation to understand and some kind of heist. Uh, and apparently nobody has made it illegal to do all those three things together. <laughs> but would you do it again? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would because I'm ridiculous and it pleases me more than almost anything when people say to me, genre is this book and I say it's fiction it's fiction that's 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 the it I I, I took a few bits from each genre that really spoke to me and here we go it's right right I don't think it's my job to write to um like the little uh signs in the bookstore still less to the uh, signs on the Amazon website. Exactly. Match more to what comes to you naturally. And speaking of things coming to you, how did you find your way into writing? Oh, in general or in this yes, book? Yes, in general and That's then cool. in the book. Oh, oh I like this question. <laughs> yeah, we'll take you back. <laughs> so um, when I think back in my life, I, I think my earliest memory of writing for my own pleasure was when I was seven years old and came home from school and wrote a poem just for my own enjoyment. So that must have been something starting. Also around that age, I wrote a story and it got put on the wall at school. That'll do it. Yeah, that was that was pretty exciting. So um, by the time I was 14, 15, I think if you had asked me in my inward soul, what I wanted to do, I was just, I want to be a writer, but I didn't dare to say it out loud. Um, but I did, when I was 15, I tried to write a novel. It was not very good and I didn't get very far. 
when I was 19, I did finish a whole novel. It was also not very good, but I had finished it. Um, <laughs> you can say and, you did it. <laughs> yeah, I did it. I did it. That was before NaNoWriMo. It was before. Right. This was just your challenge for yourself. Right. Right. So I, I have to say to anybody listening, if you are somebody who has finished a novel and you know, it still made sense at the end and it was still the same characters. That is something that most people do not do. If you've done that more than once, you're, you know, and you want to be a writer, you probably got it. Most people never finish a book. If you can dedicate yourself to actually completing yeah. it and to think of, it wasn't very good at 19, but also look at you now, you are the writer, you are the, you know, I mean, I read it in your bio, but the, all of the awards and the shortlists and the, you know, like <laughs> from the start of being on the wall. And I was on, I was on the best book of the year list by both Barack Obama and Bill Gates. So that's something. Um, yeah, I, I think... Oh, there's that joke, isn't there? Um, I'm writing a novel. No, I'm not either. Which is... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So so my real kind of big turning point was I was living in New York in Manhattan on 9-11. Oh, wow. I, yeah, I was 26. Um, I saw the towers falling from my office window. And I thought in the days and weeks that came after, I thought bet there are people in those buildings who are thinking what I'm thinking, which is, I'll just do this job for another few years, and then I'll go and write that novel I always meant to write. And then, yeah, so I quit my job, and I uh, enrolled in an MFA in creative writing, and I wrote my first novel, which was published in 2006. Wow. What a spark. What an impetus to just be like, no, it's... I, yeah, I, no, do it now. Do it now. You never know what tomorrow is going never, to bring. You never know what... If you've got something in you, like life or death is not going to wait for you to get your act together. And I don't know what I was waiting for, but like I wrote, I wrote a novel and then I, like, I had a really ridiculous jammy story where... Um, jammy in the UK means, um, what does it mean? It's like too good to be true, so good that you'll be jealous of me. Uh, I, I got all the jam. My agent sent out the book to publishers around London on like Friday afternoon. And she said to me, look, it's going to be a month before we hear anything. So, you know, don't freak out, don't panic. And then nine o'clock on Monday morning, Penguin called with an offer. So, Wow. Yeah. So do it now. Do it now. <laughs> <laughs> do it now because right, you could be sitting on the the yeah. next piece. Mm -hmm. That leads right into we don't know what tomorrow brings and an apocalypse story. <laughs> what drew you to an apocalypse story? I mean, I can't even I can't even think of a proper way to ask like how did you decide on the several genres that are rolled into this book? <laughs> but how did you decide on apocalypse? How did I decide on apocalypse? Well, I have for the past. 12 years been making my game zombies are on yes which love is, it yeah thank you <laughs> <laughs> which is that that's a zombie apocalypse obviously which is not a very likely apocalypse um but obviously i've been thinking a lot about the apocalypse um what i say about zombies run is that we have created essentially a left-wing apocalypse which is to say it's not one that you get through by holding yourself up with guns it's one that you get through by caring for each other 
in a way it is a bit ridiculous to call that left-wing because there are also brilliantly supportive right-wing communities. But I think what I really mean is individualist versus communal. Uh, yeah, so so Zombies Run is quite a communal apocalypse where the most important skills are not just being able to get away from the zombies, obviously, by running, but but also being able to care for other people, everybody taking their place in the community. That tends to be how human societies work. So I had been thinking a lot about apocalypses. Um, I also, this is true, but ridiculous. In, in 2016, when I started working on or thinking about this book, I noticed that it had been about 100 years since the 1918 flu pandemic. And I thought, God, we're really due for another one. Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry if that thought is what caused it. You know, I'm always happy to meet another person who has the feeling that they caused the pandemic a little bit. Uh, I travel for work a lot. And I was saying the end of 2019 just like a month a month to be home (laughs) here have home forever (laughs) i've been home for three years now uh like did i did i manifest that (laughs) well we make those jokes in order to make us feel like we have more control over situations in which we're actually completely powerless don't we exactly so you you saw the trend forecast yeah, well, I just sort of thought, oh, that would be interesting to write a novel about like that sort of apocalypse. This novel used to have a lot more pandemic stuff in it before the pandemic, and um, <laughs> interesting I, I what had... kind of world building you have to cut. Right, I just thought nobody wants to read that. I didn't want to write it anymore, and nobody wanted to read it. So uh, yeah, change that around. It. I suppose I was thinking in that direction, and I read this uh, New Yorker article about the billionaires having these bunkers that they would go to in the event of an apocalypse. And this was the first time I'd heard this. And I thought, God, that's disgusting. And right, disgusting. And then I thought, oh, no. If they're thinking this way, that means they are not motivated to fix it. They think they can get out. And having grown up very religious with a good Bible schooling, um, I remembered immediately the story of Lot in the Bible, who believes himself to be able to escape from the cities of the plain when they are destroyed. And uh, nobody gets out in a healthy, good way. If you were in a place and you didn't try to help and you just kind of went, I'll be fine, I'll be able to get out. Yeah, you sort of take it with you. So, uh, yeah, we're not going to spoil for the listeners what happens in the novel, but um, let me say that I don't think that the plan to go to a bunker and then you're going to be completely, I don't think, I don't think that's going to end up with you being very psychologically okay at the end. I don't imagine, you know, thinking of just what it was like being in our own bunkers. Uh... Oh, my God, right? <laughs> the aftermath of that, I oh. a true being encapsulated like that Mm -mm. yeah yeah I think we probably I was thinking this the other day like you know maybe obviously this is a stupid thought so I just want to preface that with you know stupid I think stupid things all the time um but I think for like years I somehow had in my mind 
oh, I would hate to go to prison. But then I thought, well, maybe if I went to prison, I would like be one of those people who do tons of like push ups and press up and pull up. And uh, we've all discovered how much we would hate prison because what we experienced was so much better than prison. And it was really bad. When we were locked up at home, I thought how comfy my couch was or how badly the kitchen needed to be repainted. Like those were the (laughs) things I was thinking, not what if I took care of my body? Yeah, I did learn Arabic. That was my that was my lockdown project. So, so yeah, what we learn is we don't become different people. We just become the same kind of obsessive autodidacts that we always were. Now, you started in 2016 on this book, and I'm of, I, of course, have to be curious, how much did you find yourself having to cut once the pandemic hit? Yeah, most of it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, the, the book used to have about 50 pages in it of stuff about N numbers and, you know, all of those things that are really fun to contemplate before you're living through it. And then once you're living through it, you go, this is not... It was. I never expected the apocalypse to be that boring. Right. I never expected a global pandemic to just kind of be like, okay, we're we're watching flow charts and numbers right. and and maps go up and down. Right. And... We're getting up at three a.m. to get a grocery order slot, and we had like. And then we're spraying down the bags. Yeah. If you ordered yeah. food for delivery, you were wiping everything down, washing yourself before you opened it. Right. Or like, like you know, sh- I didn't shout at a runner, but like, just like making a face at a runner who runs too close to you, breathing heavily on the street. Yeah. People in line in the store, if they were even a little bit too close, like, hey, oh. the dot on the floor is back there. Yeah. Getting yeah. irrationally mad if they weren't following the path. Because a right. lot of our like grocery stores put arrows on the floor of like, this is only a down island. That one's only an up. And... <laughs> God. <laughs> like, I, I still have somewhere in this house a bottle of hand sanitizer that I bought in sort of mid, like, I think second or third week of March 2020, um, which, co- which has on it the price to get 18 pounds. So was that like twenty three dollars for a bottle of hand sanitizer? Because that, like, <laughs> yeah, it was a really. I mean, I think because it was so weird, it's quite hard to remember it now. In in you know, in the way that like I was gonna say like a, like like apparently psychopathic abusers try to behave in such a weird way that your brain actually can't hold on to it. So it was, I, I mean, you know, every country had a different story, but certainly in the UK, we had some rough, very tough lockdowns. At the start, we were only officially allowed out of our houses for one hour a day <laughs> for exercise. And they, yeah, they did. A, they, I mean, I know that sounds crazy. And it was illegal to hug people. Wow. <laughs> We didn't know a lot at that point about what the pandemic was. But at the same time, I think about also they they like roped off, you know, put hazard tape on the park benches. And I was I was hanging out with a like I was taking care of a child and I had taken this child to the park just to kind of sit in the park on our yoga mats and do some kind of listening to music and meditating because um children were freaking out and the 
park attendants came and moved us on and, and like so it, it makes sense that you had to change a few things yeah it's been very weird writing a novel about the apocalypse during a pandemic and um i de- i had to take out a enormous amount because it just wasn't fun anymore to think about but but it turns out i still have quite a lot to say and there are quite a lot of other things that are really good fun so i have those in there instead and and that's what really makes it shine. I think there's an interesting amount of authenticity to such a, a fiction story because of mm. what we lived through, which is, I think that, you know, for a while we were seeing books that were in some way about being locked up one way or another as a result of the pandemic. <laughs> but now we're like through the processing writing phase mm-hmm. and now we're into like, let's think of this in the fun sci-fi. How do we, how do we like actually harness this? And so right. it's so exciting to read the future. Like, oh. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. It's also a book with a lot of globe trotting in it, which I think is something that, you know, you, you'd like to do when you can't get out is to go, right. Let's let's have a book where you go to Haida Gwaii and to um, Singapore and let's, you know, travel to so many different places and enjoy the sense of freedom. So, so yeah. And, I mean, obviously the other thing that has happened in the past few years is as we've all been more and more and more glued to our screens, these technology billionaires have become increasingly powerful. In and, so many ways, in the, yeah. the parasocial way of social media, in the monetary way. and Right. I mean, in a way, it's kind of it was kind of astonishing that capitalism did manage to turn on a dime like that, as it were. Very quickly went from we've got supply chain issues to, oh, yeah. you're willing to pay more, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is all great. Yeah. <laughs> so the the book tackles so many kind of complex things from looking at the the cadence of billionaire growth but also um the dangers of social media the first thing though is you include one of my favorite kind of writing bits which is playing with time we are looking at kind of a a before leading up to and the in the midst of mm-hmm. i have to ask how do you keep yourself organized especially with how this book reads with time how, how do you do it? What's your what is <laughs> what is your framework look like? It, it is true. You do you, you know? I think I think you can enjoy the book, even if you get a little confused at times, and I think that's fine. And I've seen a couple of early readers say, "Oh, you know, I loved it, but I found the timeline a bit confusing." And I'm like, "That's okay. You're fine. You know, it, it's not gonna it's not gonna harm you." I love see, and I'm a sucker for that. That's when I'm like. Yes, throw me, yes. <laughs> throw me yeah. through time is what I want. <laughs> right, I love it. I, you know, I like a book that doesn't underestimate the intelligence of the reader. I would rather be a, a writer who's writing, imagining a very intelligent reader, and then, um, you know, some people like like there's some level of confusion, but you figure it out, than to be sort of spoon feeding, and that's what I also like as a reader. So. Um, yeah, how did I keep it straight? I, the answer is I have a very good editor, who is Tim O'Connell at Simon and Schuster. To be fair, I don't have a terrible problem with it, and I can tell you the things that happened in what order. But also, to be fair, I wrote the book in a really strange order, and I haven't had this experience before with a book where it came out as. It started as a series of scenes that I knew were interlinked in some way, but I didn't know how. So there was a person 
who believes themselves to be the last person alive in a survival suit on an island. So good. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I was writing that, and I was writing a woman being chased by an assassin through a mall in Singapore. And I was also writing stuff about the story of Lot. And I knew that these things all belonged in the same book. But it took me a lot of writing and rewriting and rewriting to figure out how they fitted together. So the answer always is, how do you do a magic trick with much more work than you can possibly imagine? Uh, it, Yeah, it did take a long time. But um, no, I love it. I find it really kind of chewy and interesting to be going backwards and forwards in the stories of characters and to see somehow who they are before you figure out why they are that way. I find that massively satisfying. It's such a fun way to experience character development. I mean, it's, I I get the motivation. Yeah. That is how we get to know people, which Mm -hmm. is we meet people as they are in the moment. And then if we really like them and we become very close, we may eventually find out what their story is. Right. What makes them tick? How did they get to where they're at today? Yeah. That's that's the fun part of knowing. Yeah. Even though you live your own life forward in time, you live everyone else's life backwards and forwards in time. <laughs> what a what a thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, right? I mean, like not your own child, but even still, sometimes, you know, the child will tell you something long after it happened. And then you have to kind of revise what you've understood. So that's that's one of the most truthful i think things about human beings is we're constantly revising our understanding of each other right and we're we're living in kind of all moments at the same time it's something when i was a child i always found it very uncanny about books that you know a a, a book would start with a character in a terrible situation you know so many children's books start with this this child just lost its parents or is poor or whatever and you know standing like standing in the rain, you know, like rolled doll books, nose pressed up against the glass, etc. And then at the end, by the end, there's a happy ending and whatever. But it always really disturbed me that whatever happy ending there is, you can always go back to the first page. And there is the main character miserable. There's the horrible stuff going on. How happy is that happiness when everything started so poorly? (laughs) Well, it's just, you know, books Books are a sort of perfect kind of time travel because you can read exactly the same words again and go back and have, you know, that experience of those words. Exactly. It's, it's, I love a reread. It's uh, oh, one, of, one of my favorite things to do is to allot books to like, nope, this one, this one is in the, in the special secret pile of I could read this again and again. Do you know, I make lists every year these days of books I've read. And partly that's because I get asked a lot for what have you read this year? What have you liked recently? So it's good to just be able to quickly look and not have to go, oh. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. 
I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Why did I put it on the show? What am I um, reading now? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do make little notes in there to go reread this one. I can't remember what I had for lunch. I'm never going to remember what I want to reread. <laughs> if it's not the books that I've been rereading for the last 20 years. Right. right. Sometimes you have to add a new one to the pile. <laughs> right. And I mean, it's like both the pleasure and the terribleness of working professionally in the books industry. Yeah. Which is you can get all the books. Now, looking at character relationships, because we can't get into these rich people heading to their secret islands without how complex each character is how do you build these dynamic characters they have so much meat to them mm, okay so I definitely think that I benefited from I was working on the tv show of the power at the same time that I was writing this novel and what that involves is you're talking to other writers who are going to write your characters and so they ask a ton of questions and then you realize the parts that you hadn't thought through. And it's a really good training. It's just incredibly robust and demanding to say, OK, another writer is going to come to you. A brilliant writer, at the top of their game is going to come to you and say, OK, so this character, I see that here. He mentioned that he spent some time in Brazil as a young man. So what, what 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 was that exactly? And how did he get there? How long was he there for? Does he have family in Brazil? You know, and uh, can you tell me about his mum and dad? And uh, yeah, where does his mum and dad grow up? And uh, so his money, where does that come from? And, <laughs> and you're like, oh, no, I know more about this character now than I ever thought I yeah. would. <laughs> yeah. And often you find you do have an answer, but then sometimes you go, oh, God, I never... Like I kind of reached the edges. And I suppose what that is a training in is to push out the edges very, very far. So to really start asking a lot of questions about who that character is and to make that make sense. I think also, for me anyway, I would say that my characters have developed as I have grown up. And I'm in the middle of my life now. I'm definitely middle-aged. And um, there's nothing I could have done at 26 to have the amount of knowledge and understanding of humans that you get over the 20 years after that. And, and the things that you've seen and the ways that you have seen lives and, and people develop. I mean, there's nothing like going to your, you know, 30-year school reunion and seeing what has become of the people that you remembered when you were from when you were a teenager, uh, this, it's, there's just nothing like it for understanding character. So I, I, I must say, as as a writer, um, I really I, I know this sounds ridiculous, but I'm going to say it anyway. If 
feel like I'm coming into my powers now. I'm just like, okay, I can see how to do a bunch of different things. And also, um, somebody who read this book, The Future, said, um, there's not a character in it that is completely wrong. Everyone has some bit of the truth. And I guess that, I think, is also a function of growing up and going, oh, right, the world is not made of goodies and baddies, black and white, you know, um, the, 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 you know, these people are all wrong and these people are all right. Um, there's a really good line by uh, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning economic, ec economist, where he says, um, when someone tells you what they think, don't ask if they're right. Ask what they're right about. I think it might be don't ask whether it's true, ask what it's true of, which is the same question, which is to say everybody's an expert in their own life at the very least. And if they think something that you disagree with, then probably they have had some interesting experiences that you have not had. You know, there's a, there's a, there are points of, of commonality between between all humans, but also just like even if you don't, you don't have to agree with it. I think increasingly... I am really uninterested in opinions. You know that saying, opinions are like assholes. Everyone's um, got one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's a great saying because, of course, they're, they're mostly useless unless you really know something. But I, So I'm so uninterested in opinions, but I'm so interested in the life experiences that have brought you to that opinion. The story that is in your mind when you give me that opinion, I'm fascinated by that. And I feel like amongst the many crimes of social media is that it's it's encouraging us towards opinions rather than stories. And yeah, always possible to curate your social media so that you see, you know, nice photographs of animals. And you have to remember that you're looking at the gallery and not the reality. <laughs> you know. I don't know um, what the statistic is on this for the US, but in the UK, only 14%, 1-4% of people in the UK have ever had an account on Twitter. And so why are we behaving as if that's, like, real? <laughs> Given that 96, no, 86%, I can do maths, I have got maths A-level, 86%, but I've also just had COVID, of... Um, of, of people in the UK have never been on there. So wow. in this country, anyway, we get a lot of news reports, which are like, this is what people are saying. And you go, did you not used to go out and interview people in the street? Right. There used to be microphones and news crews everywhere. Yeah. There used to be that thing, Vox Pops. And, you know, you get like, we interviewed blah, blah, blah outside. And Jim from here said this. And um, yeah, you don't see that so much anymore. Uh, and partly that's because obviously the internet has killed pr print media and we haven't found anything great to replace it with. But also, we're not looking at what we think we're looking at. You know, it presents itself as being the world and it's actually a very uh, doctored view of the world, a very uh, like slanted view. And that is a theme of the novel. <laughs> is, when you're looking at things via your technology, you're not looking at the real world. It doesn't mean it's not useful. It doesn't mean it's not fun. You know, you don't have to, like, give it up. But don't 
treat that as if that's the only way that you need to know about reality. There's also the actual reality where you live or where you go, you know, actual, oh, yeah. There are, there are things to experience. Of course, you also mentioned the survivalist character. So you've got the, the combination of influencer and, and kind of the wealthy and wealth disparity looking at social media to kind of continue that its impact on our collective consciousness. What are some of the things you would warn people to just really watch out for or that you really dislike or find dangerous Uh online? Yeah. Okay. So my, my two main characters in the novel are Martha, who is the PA to the head of Bantail Social Network and uh, Jen, who is a journalist doing, I bet she's probably doing TikTok, isn't she? Uh, Yeah, doing on the apocalypse beat. So she sort of tells you about what... uh, what 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 technology is going to get you through the upcoming apocalypse? And um, they are both in their ways quite wary of what technology can do and how much it's watching us and what they're using it for. So uh, Martha, the PA, um, I, I know somebody in Silicon Valley who who works with some technology billionaires, and I I, I said to my friend. You know, I'm fascinated by these PAs because there they are. They know everything. I've never, ever seen an interview with any with any of them or even um, a uh, like like a photo, even anybody asking any questions about who they are. And, and they're so powerful. They and my friend who is friends with a couple of PAs who are in that situation said to me, well, you know, a lot of them grew up in cults. And I thought, in which case I can write that character. <laughs> I mean, I didn't grow up in a cult, but I did grow up in a fundamentalist religion. So I thought, okay, I can write that character. Amazing. And of course, the reasons are obvious. You know, you also have to be able to follow the vision of a founder who can, people believe, can see the future. And if you only follow him, usually him, then uh, you also will be uh, achieving salvation or at least a lot of cash, you know. Uh, And we've seen people following... Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried in that way, all the way to um, financial ruin. So in terms of things I would warn people against, I guess, in modern technology, I think one of the pieces I'm really proud of in the book is that I have three pages in there which will explain to you how machine learning works. And if you are an arts graduate and you like reading novels, I just want to be able to like take you by the hand and go, you can understand this. It's fine. Don't panic. I will. I can take you through it, and at the end, you'll go, "Oh, is that all it is?" Oh, yeah. I, I was doing. I was doing maths and formal logic up to the and, and English literature until I was about twenty. So, um, I can. I can get you through it. Don't worry. So I do it via this actual thing where a that first machine learning experiment was done using matchboxes and beads. Uh, teaching a set of matchboxes, teaching as if it really learns anything, creating a set of matchboxes and beads that is able to make moves in tic-tac-toe. And (laughs) once you see how that's done, you go, oh, I get it. 
I get it. This, these matchboxes and beads don't know anything. It's a really interesting, useful way of storing human knowledge. And that is exactly the same thing as all of this uh, chat GPT, AI, mid-journey, etc. What it's doing is a really super interesting way of searching the internet and presenting to us information from the internet in a really useful presentation box. So essentially, they have invented a box with a little velvet cushion in it so that we, we can go, we can request it, we, we get it in this lovely box. However, <laughs> they seem to be willing to pretend that because they invented the box, they now own the contents. And I object to that extremely strongly. And I would really suggest that everybody ought to object to it extremely strongly uh, because it is it is essentially theft from all of us. So there are a lot of writers now who are complaining, including me, that my previous novels were all scraped, as they say, by uh, uh, by by AI programs and used to train AI. These are also not correct words. <laughs> Because what they mean is they just took it. Right, my Yiddish-speaking grandparents would say they hopped it. They just, like, grabbed it and took it. Um, and I never gave permission for that. You know, if you want to make a derivative work based on my work, a, novel, a, a, a movie out of my novel or a radio program or anything, you've got to come, ask my permission, and I get to negotiate with you. And if I want to say no, I just say no, or you've got to pay me. So, yeah. You can't just hop it and then and then go, well, we've made this derivative work, but it's derivative of yours and like other work. So, you know, that's basically the same. You don't own it. And I think it's very important to know that that is how a lot of services that we think are cool on the Internet actually work. So, for example, translation software. Uh, so you, we, I go and use Google Translate. Google Translate's amazing. It's fantastic but it's not that google has in and of itself you know somehow learned how to teach machines languages what it does is it takes huge amounts of data from the internet particularly companies and governments in particular which have to publish um information in multiple languages so for example the canadian government publishes all of its documentation, everything, and all of the debates in Parliament in French and English. So any time that you're doing a French-English-English-French translation, essentially we should be giving a little royalty to people of Canada every time we do that. And that's one that we sort of know about and know that's probably what happened. But there are almost certainly millions, if not billions of other individual like human working translators who have worked to create online translations of important things you know public announcements pieces of art just like doing something for a friend where you translate their birthday invitation into another language all of those things it just scrapes and scrapes and scrapes and scrapes and um yeah it never used to be possible to own all of that and, you know, you wouldn't have been able to gather up every instance of somebody posting a tweet, both in uh, English and in Arabic, and then be able to go, oh, look, this is a translation. Um, 
but now you can. And because they invented the way to do it, they seem to feel like they own all the stuff in it. So I guess that's my, I would, I think people look at AI and they get frightened and I would really encourage them to get angry. And it's not like I'm going to say shut it down, but I think the vast fortunes that are being accumulated through all of this stealing of data and knowledge from humans who have put it onto the internet really to help out the other humans, um, that wealth doesn't belong to them. It belongs to all of us. And probably we should be using it for something that would benefit all of us rather than the kind of weird personal ambitions of a few lucky billionaires. The only thing I can think of to end on after that is, is there anything else that you would like listeners to take away from or that you want to promote in this moment? <laughs> I guess I would love to say that this is really fun as well as being serious. There are so many wonderful things in it that just make you think and make you reflect as our conversation today shows. But it's also so much fun. I mean, each of those separate vignettes that you described, spoiler alert, are in this book. <laughs> right. <laughs> you brought right. them all together in this book. The The fun is there. The noir is there. The thriller. So it's a ride. My Right. My goal is to show the reader a good time. And that at the end when you've like, I, uh, I want... Uh, this is really what I'd like to do. I want to write a page turner where you cannot help but know, want to know what's going to come next. And then at the end, after you, the book has spat you out, you go, hmm, I seem to have also thought about quite a lot of big subjects here. Wow. Uh, that's my goal. I'm, I'm aware that as a writer of novels, you know, I'm competing for people's time and attention with Netflix and with social media and with you know, TikTok and with all of the wonderful things that exist. So I think it's my job to make that fun for them. And it's my job to help you keep on reading. Just like with the zombie game, it's my job to help you keep on running. And if you have not run with Zombies Run, <laughs> you have to do it. That it is it is so much fun. And I am a nighttime runner, so there's an added like there's an added level of atmosphere yeah. to it. So <laughs> well, Naomi, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's been a joy. Thank you so much. What a wonderful conversation. And listeners, remember, the future is out on November 7th here in the US. Uh, so go ahead and pick it up and enjoy. And as always, happy reading. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com or in Libby. Our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... 
The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.